This is In Conversation from Network Reorient, in association with Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. In the last episode of Season 5, we sit with Salman Said to conclude our discussion on Islamism as philosophy. Assalamu alaikum all. Welcome uh, to this continuation of our discussion on Islamism as philosophy. I have with me again Professor Salman Said to discuss this uh, topic with us. Um, so, Professor Said, I'm going to ask what is perhaps uh, a provocative question, especially given debates around the role of Latin American and Latinx scholars in decoloniality and the need to be less Atlantic-centric in our resources, uh, especially decolonial, decolonial resources, I should say, uh, taking from, for example, Sub-Saharan Africa, India, and Southeast Asia. And obviously within this debate, or within this position, there seems to be something implied. And I think that's what my question is. Does decoloniality have an Islamicate-shaped hole? Assalamualaikum, everyone, and thank you, Hizr, for that um, uh, provocative and searching question. It's not really a question, it's a kind of points of reflection, I suppose. And really, the question, what we have to ask ourselves is, what is the ambition of decoloniality? Why decoloniality? What does it set out to explain or account for? Um, as you mentioned, there's no doubt that it has a particular beginnings, which reflect um, particular kinds of scholarship, focused on the Atlantic. And one very easy way and you know to 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 include that um, to include the Islamicate into that scholarship is to see it as one of the points of this triangle between Europe, Africa, and the Americas. Because after all, the um, you know it's Columbus setting off from the Iberian Peninsula, uh, so discovering so-called um, the Americas, and in the process, beginning, uh, marking off the beginning of a new world order, uh, the modern world itself. And there is a convenient convergence of dates and uh, conjunction of the stars around the fact that, um, you know, the fall of Granada facilitates um, temporarily and many other ways the, 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 the expedition of Columbus when Columbus is going to the um, on his voyage of discovery, of course, he's not going there to discover a new continent, but to find the route to another continent. His 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 um, constructions and representations are saturated with the imagery of a crusading warrior involved in in in, in the conflict with the Islamicate. I mean, that's all there. So that's mm. that seems to suggest that the Islamicate is intrinsic to the decolonial, and therefore part of that decolonial triangle would be the influence of the Islamic But a closer examination shows a number of anomalies, and to what extent these anomalies are disruptive or some those that can be recuperated, I think is a, a matter of some debate. Now, to, to make clear what these anomalies are is to understand what is involved in the very idea of the coloniality of power. So to make it uh, very simple, the idea is this, that the 
formation of this new world system means the innovation of racism, uh, primarily, but also particular kind of organization around gender, particular formations of hierarchy, which are novel and distinct from what has gone before. Um, and so the first point of contention is to what extent this colonial matrix of power is actually a disruption and a kind of rupture in world history rather than a continuation of world history. And strangely enough, there's, there's a kind of, a, there's two ways that branches off. There are those who argue that it is a rupture on the grounds of the invention of modernity and modernity itself as a European category, right? Mm. But then there are those who argue it's a rupture because not only because it invents modernity, but modernity has a so-called dark side, as well Terminola's mm. book sort of suggests, which is coloniality. So coloniality and modernity are co-produced by this ruptural moment. So that's one. So there's two different arguments. One which is basically uh, boasts about Eurocentricism through modern modernity, and the other which has much more critical notion and says it's against Eurocentricism because it focuses on coloniality. But within that, you have then this idea that the exercise and all exercises of power must somehow be uh, partly linked to the coloniality of power itself. In other words, that you are dealing with a colonial coloniality which remakes the world, and in doing so, all cruelties, all inequities can be uh, reduced to that coloniality. And that produces an, another series of anomalies that I want to go into. So that's one kind of framing. The second one is simply one at a, at a descriptive level. So if you talk about the um, significance of 1492, mm. then, you know, in 1453, the Muslims capture the center of Christendom. They capture Constantinople, which up to that point is the major symbolic, cultural, intellectual heart of what is Christendom, etc. So that's so 40 years before Granada falls, they take Constantinople, the second Rome. You have then uh, 20 years after Granada falls, Muslim armies besieging. Um, Vienna, right in the heart of Europe. If you think about, you know, where Vienna is now, to think this was being besieged by Muslim armies. So it is difficult to see in 1492 the collapse of Muslim power understood globally or understood non-Eurocentrically. In other words, while Muslim power in the Iberian Peninsula is extinguished, it is not the case that it is the same thing happens in the rest of the world or even the rest of the Mediterranean, etc. Yeah. But the second element of that descriptive thing is that the the people uh, involved, in, you know, the 
Christian authorities, one of the ways that they ended up, one of the reasons they ended up expelling Muslims and Jews was because there was a fear that a Muslim army would come and liberate these people. So this fear of a Muslim army coming from Africa to retake Granada and to re um, to you know to re to conquer what had been lost to the Christians um, and liberate and emancipate the five million plus Muslims living in the Iberian Peninsula, as some estimates argue. And that's an extraordinarily different um, way of thinking about the world because mm. what it says is that the Islamicate is not subjugated or marginalized. It is not powerless. We're not dealing with a, a you know the dispossessed here. Uh, mm. We are or the wretched of the earth. What is motivating much of the European responses, or we could call um, anachronistically European responses, is the fear the very real geopolitical economic fear of the exercise of Muslim power in relation to um, what has happened in Granada. Now, because that was not realized doesn't mean that that's not what people thought was possible. And the fact that it was realized itself doesn't tell us that it, was, it wasn't realized because it was impossible. It was not realized for a series of contingent reasons. It's not that it had no potential to be realized. Mm. So when you put it on those descriptive terms, then the picture about the significance of 1492 becomes weaker as a marker of the uh, subjugation of um, Muslimness. Mm. And the final point then is it raises questions among um, many um, Muslim activists and um, thinkers around, well, surely if you're talking about decoloniality um, in any way, you must also be um, critical of all uh, imperial formations, all mm -hmm. exercises of power. Now, in which case, you have to then understand that is the venture of Islam analogous to the venture that makes the world shaped like Europe or centered around the shape of Europe. And that, of course, as you know, that there are many who would argue that actually we need to do something about racism in Islam. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to do something about sexism in Islam. We need to do something about uh, cruelties and inequalities and in Islam. Now, here, of course, Islam now is being used in, a, in a, you know, is not to just name a a body of uh, comportment, text, practices, beliefs, however you want to put it, but mm. the entire kind of cultural edifice structured around the name of Islam. And these debates are very, very real because when you have, for example, conversations of Islamophobia, there will invariably mm -hmm. some uh, right-on Muslim who would want to 
virtue signal by saying that what we have to do about Islamophobia is deal with the problems about internal to uh, Muslims and the racism in Muslims, etc. Which is not to argue you don't need to deal with those issues, but there is no necessary linkage between racism, which is produced through the kind of uh, coloniality of power, and its effects in other cultures and societies. So I think that's the third kind of issue, that it creates this idea, and it also mm. then becomes locks into this uh, narrative, which we've seen that, you know, uh, among um, neocons and fellow travelers who would uh, defend Eurocentricism by saying, well, of course there was Atlantic slavery and it was terrible, but look at the Muslims. They had sub-Saharan slavery, and nobody ever talks mm. about that. This is because of political correctness gone mad. So you find, you know, the analogous and you have these, you know, you can go on the net and see, yes, uh, European colonialism was very destructive, but 70 million people were killed by uh, Islamic colonialism. So there's a kind of a, a, a drawing of analogies and similarities between these two things, which make very little historical sense, but they're enabled by use by actually a eurocentric internalization of decoloniality mm. that rather than seeing decoloniality in relation to its specificity you then mm. generalize it and assume that the xenosphere or the islamosphere or the indosphere are all the you know are all predicated on the same kinds of logics mm. as the European colonial enterprise. Okay. Um, I just want to jump in here quickly. So is would it be fair then to call that kind of decoloniality like a domesticated decoloniality where Westernese has kind of tried to reclaim that which is going against it in order to try to uh, explain it? So as we know... Westernese tries to explain the world in its totality, and that includes itself, and that which it's which is against it, even. So, would you say then that this is an example of an attempt to domesticate decoloniality? I think I think certainly there's an element of domesticating decoloniality. The question is this: that we have to find out is decoloniality domestic or not, to start mm. off with. So, is it a domestication or is it already domestic? Um, now, I think to be fair, I think one has to understand that the way that decoloniality has begun to circulate across the world mm. um, and the way that it's been taken up, there are obviously people who are puzzled by how such a critical, potentially critical comportment so easily sits with, um, with corporate agendas, for example, or things like that. Mm. I'm less concerned about that because it seems to me that these things are inevitable but i think we have to we have to be more balanced about this there is certainly a, a sense in which decoloniality has been part of the educational work which has transformed or seeks to transform large swathes of public opinion and large swathes of um, public etiquette around certain issues. So, for example, we saw all, all the demonstrations generated by Black Lives Matter, mm. which were not simply activists, but they transcended, especially in the United States, this kind of, you know, 
um, kind of multi-ethnic, if you want, or multicultural alliances, including um, expressions of whiteness against police violence. Now, that in itself was, um, you know, it's fantastic. But what was even more intriguing and compelling was that police violence was no longer seen as simply the product of a few rotten apples. Mm. Not even the product of a particular policing system. So the idea that you could have different kinds of policing institutionalized or particular police departments, but rather a legacy of the colonial inheritance, especially through the projects of enslavement mm. uh, in the United States. So okay. that is a decolonial argument, which is able to link the killing of someone like George Floyd with the insistence on having statues in mm. universities celebrating racists to the way in systems of policing, systems of administration, betray that colonial legacy in every day, in mm. every way. So that is actually quite, I would argue, a progressive moment. But linked with that, you have to ask yourself is that where does this decoloniality start fraying at the edges? And I think here is a question about the relationship between the decolonial and the political, or mm. more prosaically, decolonial and power, and decolonial and 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 um, politics itself. So, on the one hand, I am tremendously weary and um, wary as well um, of the inability to theorize exercises of power associated with some manifestations of the decolonial. Mm. That for me is far more insidious and dangerous than universities embracing decolonizing the curriculum. Because if you can't conceptualize power, you can't actually decolonize. Mm. And here, I think the separation between the anti-colonial and, and, let's say, decolonization itself is challenging because acts of decolonization are acts of transformations of power, relations of power. Mm. You can only transform, transform relations of power through the exercise of power. So here, I think my position is this that accounts which see power as simply repressive do not allow for the notion of power as productive and power-producing subjectivities which are different than the ones that are in play. And without being able to produce these different subjectivities which are exercised in power, you condemn yourself to being a permanent opposition and not being able to bring about any meaningful transformation in the lives of the people you care about and the world itself. Mm. So how would or should a decolonial Muslim read 
1492. I think they should read it in the same way as a decolonial thinker, writer, reader, activist who takes decoloniality seriously should read it. And that is to recognize that you know decoloniality is not superficial or simply cosmetic in its understanding of historical complexity. So the issue really for 1492 is this, that uh, one way would be to simply see the kind of um, convergence, happenstance between the fall of Granada and Columbus's um, conquest of what became the Americas. And you can see how one was enabled by the other. And there, around that, you can narrate a history of European ascendancy and excellence, which starts off at 1492 and goes all the way to the um, contemporary age. Now, the challenge is this, that if you start taking Islamic history seriously, or even in a sense of knowledgeably, that narrative is going to have to deal with a number of anomalies. So two very simple anomalies. Um, 50 years before 1492, you have the Muslim um, conquest of Constantinople, which was for a thousand years the center of what becomes European, um, the European formation. It is the second Rome, it's the center of Christendom. It is, it, is, it is considered to be a major, major turning point. So the narrative of Muslim decline, beginning with Granada and, and, and going on, becomes complicated. Um, about 20 years after the um, conquest of Granada, Muslim armies are besieging Vienna in the heart of Europe. That again interrupts the narrative that Muslim subjugation begins in 1492 and goes on till um, the present. So these are first set of anomalies. The second set of anomalies arises with the constitution of um, the, re the way that 1492 is read as a kind of a triangle between Europe uh, represented by the Iberian Peninsula, primarily um, Africa and the Americas. And in that, Atlantic centricism, is the Islamicate is seen as an intruder. So you miss out the part that, in, for example, among the um, what are described uncomplicatedly as simply um, uh, African kingdoms and African enslaved Africans, uh, what is el elided and sometimes erased from that narrative is the Muslimness of those enslaved Africans and Muslimness of those African kingdoms, which are both involved in resisting European um, colonial encroachments and in some cases facilitating that. So that picture of um, uh, Africa, which is um, separated from the Islamicate is another kind of problem by simply centering on 1492. The third, I suppose, is, 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 is really trying to understand what Gran the fall of Granada in its own time. At the point of the fall in Granada, there was no ex 
clear realization or ex even expectation that that would be the case for the next 500 years. And, you know, it's worth remembering that um, Spain has been, or the Iberian Peninsula was, has been under Muslim influence far longer than it has been under exclusively Christian influence, continuous Christian influence. So, and, and, and the way to understand that is to remember that one of the reasons why this whole panoply of surveillance and sort of proto-surveillance state that sort of emerges to uh, police the Muslim population and the Jewish population is the fear that these constitute a large fifth column that a Muslim army coming from Africa which would retake um, Granada and would be aided and abetted by Muslims and Jews living under Christian rule. So there was an expectation that there may be a Muslim army coming in, which again belies the notion that the idea of Muslim power being broken forever in Granada um, and uh, is something that we can extrapolate from now. So I think it's important that we don't read Granada 1492 as, as in the same way as being analogous to the European colonial narrative, which emerges much later in many different um, parts of the Islamosphere. Mm. So, uh, so I think a decolonial, a profoundly decolonial reading, which I think would 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 have to engage with the Islamicate in this way would recognize the complications of that. And, you know, there's a phrase that Walter Manolo uses that um, talks about that he doesn't want the, um, you know, the wretched of the earth or dispossessed to simply be a category that you can just add anyone onto that. It's not something you can just expand infinitely. The Muslim just occupy that position. And this is, in fact, one of the, um, some of the kind of North American attempts to articulate um, a critical Muslim studies simply takes, for example, the Muslim subject um, and uses that to replace the subject in, in, in critical race theory without recognizing the actual epistemological challenges of making that move. Um, mm -hmm. And that, I think, is really where it's to do with sort of, I guess, in the what I'm trying to say is that it's to do with the profound and profundity and the rigor of the decolonial imagination that would understand 1492 having significance complicated um, by taking seriously the Islamic hate. Okay. Um, you mentioned uh, in your response uh, that there are certain, that the uh, using 1492 as analogous to the start of the colonial project is problematic when you take into account the Islamic hate because the colonial project developed later. Um, would you want to expand on, or could you expand on, when later would be for the Islamic hate? What what kind of date or event would you put as significant um, in that in the start of that project? Well, look, let's be honest about this. That in many ways you could argue that you know uh, a number of um, Muslim. Uh, political formations were not colonized. I mean, the Ottoman order, um, it's till 1917. Um, the, you know, what is the uh, Iran, Afghanistan. So there are many, many different ways of putting that there. So I don't think it's a question of finding one particular date as mm. such, because the experience is complicated. And at the same time, you could look at, for example, 
um, the for sub-Saharan Muslim formations and seeing how some of them actually uh, last right up to the early 20th century or in some shape, way, or form. Others are um, overcome in the 18th century. So it is a complicated picture. Um, but if you take, for example, one of the ways that um, decoloniality and decolonial thinking distinguishes itself is by drawing a contrast between it and the post-colonial. And part of that kind of reading of the post-colonial is, is to um, align it with a kind of elite third-worldist uh, knowledge-producing class, um, which I think, you know, has some uh, traces of, um, you know, some traces of something that is pro uh, accuracy, but it is, again, slightly, you know, it could be considered to be slightly hostile. But if you take that as one point, that where does post-colonialism, um, post-colonial discourse theory begins, then I think, you know, there's a good case to make the argument that um, Orientalism signals that emergence of a particular type of post-colonial literature, post-colonial reflections, which are not simply using the post-colonial in a, in a chronological sense. And Said, after much hesitancy and confusion, does take Napoleonic invasion of Egypt in um, you know, 1798 as being the beginning of that uh, nexus between uh, military occupation and knowledge production which for him becomes the highlight of Orientalism, that the Orientalism you, is not just knowing the so-called Orient, that it is actually constructing the Orient according to the template by which the knowledge about the Orient is being produced. And that, it seems to me, again, you know, this is a good symbolic beginning of, uh, of the way in which um, the Orient begins to organize um, knowledge production about of the Islamic aid and other formations. So that could be one alternative way of reading it, but I would want to have those readings not say, replacing one or the other, but simply mm. juxtaposing juxtaposing them, juxtaposing, positioning them, because then you would read them off and out you break up this idea that there could be one beginning of um, the colonial matrix, the coloniality itself. Um, and that, I think, is quite useful. Mm. Mm. Okay, I want to kind of bring together quite a few threads uh, that have been running through our discussion so far. Uh, CMS, knowledge production, Orientalism. And I want to kind of dig a bit deeper into the implications of critical Muslim studies, and especially the implications that it holds for Islamic studies, um, particularly as conducted uh, in the West, in the heart of empire, so to speak. Um, so could you speak a bit about this? What are the implications for critical Muslim studies for Islamic studies? Well, one ar argument would be that there shouldn't be any Islamic studies in, in, in the Islamosphere, um, simply mm. because, uh, firstly, I don't think there was, um, but also, surely, the whole point for Islamic studies is already a concession to the idea of Islam, which itself is Orientalist and Eurocentric, so that it is something that can be contained 
in, 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 in that boundary, whereas you could argue, well, Islam um, should per, you know, permeate many aspects of, of the social world, in which case it should not, you shouldn't be able to draw a strong distinction about the study of the Islamic, because fundamentally the study of the Islamic should be part of the study of the Islamicate, and in many parts of the world, the study of the Islamicate should be nothing more than the study of the uh, what already is there, what is existing, what is already in, in uh, what is what becomes a study of society itself. Um, so I think those. So that's the first thing. In many ways, I think um, certainly in, in my kind of formulation and my kind of um, attempt to articulate critical Muslim studies was the dissatisfaction of the way in which the experience of Muslimness found itself channeled into either Islamic studies or variant of um, area studies or some branch of anthropology or ethnic studies, etc. And, 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 and so therefore, Islamic studies and all of those other ways of reading Islam were always... Um, constrained by this gravitational pull of Islamic studies. And, and you can see that not just in academic circles, but in policy circles and journalism, when um, Muslim exp explanation of Muslim behavior um, is always one or two degrees away from, um, well, what does the Quran say in a way that there's some sort of unmediatedness between the Quran and Muslim behavior. And, and this is contrary both to most Muslim experiences and recognition that, you know, there are very few Muslims who walk around saying, I am the transparent uh, fulfillment of the Quran. And if they do, then you worry about their well-being. So, but that is a key assumption, you know, and, and there are many kind of examples of this, but um, so I think so that that's the first kind of step in that, that the Muslim studies, critical Muslim studies, distinguishes itself from Islamic studies. And it does so by, I suppose, a number of um, uh, taking up a number of devices and vectors and stratagems. So the first one, of course, is the idea of replacing the using the category of Muslimness rather than Islam as the point of its investigation, and that then moving away from a very kind of reductive notion of the to a expanded notion of the discourse, which includes both text and non-textual factors. Um, and elements. Uh, so that's one element of that. I think the other element would be in the idea of the uh, replacement of the subject of Islam, not with Muslim, but even the idea of the interrogating the subject of the Muslim. Now, often the subject of the Muslim or the subject of Islam, when they will have been interrogated by uh, critiques of Islamic studies, they have fallen into this idea of um, the multiplication or pluralization of Islam, adding like the, you know, the, the poor little suffix S is made to carry all the intellectual <laughs> labor that mm. they can't work through. So it becomes, well, there's not one Islam, there are multiple Islams. Oh, no, there is not multiple Islams. There is one Islam, but there may be multiple interpretations of it at any one time, but those interpretations are not sealed off from each other. Otherwise, if there was multiple Islam, there would be no politics of Islam as such. So really, there's a struggle of the master signifier of Islam, what it means. When you have, you know, when you have two Muslims in a room and you get three opinions about Islam forming, 
that's not a sign of decadence, but vitality, and it's part, and it is only possible because they are struggling over that uh, that one signifier. So I think that's really, really important. So, so one of the things that I would say, um, the kind of response to Islamic studies has always been to simply invert it. And critical mm. Muslim studies is not an inversion of Islamic studies. I guess if it has an ambition, um, and I don't, would be a dissolution of Islamic studies um, rather than its inversion in any particular way. Mm. And that, I suppose, goes back to many people who've read the critique of um, Islamic studies implied in Orientalism and related literature as being, well, uh, moving away from explanations which which center on Islam to talking about plurality, to be talking about multiple voices, etc., etc. Um, and I think those are just, uh, they don't, they're just very problematic because all they're doing is in per- inverting the logic of um, Orientalism, uh, uh, inverting the logic of Islamic studies through Orientalism rather than actually leading to the dissolution of Islamic studies as a viable means of understanding the world around us. Mm. Okay, um, if possible, I want to go a bit deeper into something you said at the beginning of your response to this question, which was this shift from um, the focus being on Islam to the focus being on Muslimness. Can you speak a bit more about this? What work does this actually do? Um, what what would be different if we focus on Muslimness rather than Islam? Like, uh, could you go into that a bit deeper? Well, I think if we worked on Muslimness, what does that do? It means the category of Muslim becomes unstable and historical. So, in a sense, that we say, how does Muslim? Uh, how is uh, how is something a Muslim? How is someone a Muslim? And part of that is through a certain arrangement comport- and comportment towards what is considered at a particular moment in time Muslimness. Muslimness contains within it both kind of, if you want, textual elements or um, elements around the configuration of what people may think Islam is, what the Quran is, what the kind of, um, you know, sort of the... the rearrangements of belief and arrangements around the sacred are at the same time that is always overdetermined by other kind of um, other kinds of inheritances inheritances now one of the issues is this that um, this this divide between culture and religion you know which is which is opens up here it starts off by positing these two things as being separate and what I would say to you is that really they're not experienced as separate. They're experienced as in, in, in a certain degree of um, swirl with each other. So what constitutes Muslimness um, becomes a historical and genealogical uh, study rather than simply a reflection of you know, a retreat into the present, which is the hallmark of much of... Um, the social sciences, uh, contemporary social sciences, they assume that the world began not even 6,000 years ago as many Christian fundamentalists believe, but only six minutes ago or when color TV was invented and, the, and there was a history channel can put pictures up of it all. 
And I think that's mm. that's one of the problems and challenges that we face that, you know, we have to understand being a Muslim as being a project. In a sense, it's an ongoing thing and it's a communal thing. So therefore, there's a, and, and I think Muslimness captures that sense of project, it captures a sense of that communal activity rather than a kind of, you know, a reworking of neoliberal narcissism where you are a Muslim in your own way and you cultivate the Muslimness um, almost in isolation with, uh, from mm. the Ummah, which I think is, 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 is um, impossible uh, uh, in, in good faith. Mm. Okay. Um, and another thing from that response I wanted to dig deeper into is you spoke about the dissolution of Islamic studies. And I think that carries with it certain implications regarding what the actual role of Islamic studies is. So I want to go back, and I think I asked this question as a bit of a sub-question uh, before, but I want to go a bit deeper into it uh, now. Um, so then what is the point of Islamic studies at the heart of empire? Why should it be dissolved, in short? Well, Hizza, you did Islamic studies, so um, you tell me what this, what his point is. Um, I never, I never did it, so I don't know what to talk about it. <laughs> no, I think you can. I think you can talk about it. <laughs> what did you find the point of it was? Um, I think the point of, or at least what um, the perceived point of it, I think, is to keep a link with that kind of tradition, that kind of uh, positionality as someone who, as a believer in Islam. Yeah, um, Islamic study isn't meant for the believer, is it? I mean, so now, I th- now we're getting to the heart of the matter. Yeah, who is it meant is for a, then? For the listen, I mean, look, let's, let's accept this, to start up with this, that Muslims have, and even non-Muslims have studied Islam, their inheritance, knowledge about the Quran, the Hadith, etc., the Sunnah, all of these things have been subject of Muslim study and contemplation for centuries, right? Mm. Yeah. When were they organized as Islamic studies is the real question. So when you, for example, look at, uh, you know, learned um, uh, learned writers and thinkers from um, the, the pre-colonial past, mm. you don't get a sense that they you can divide them up into sort of straightforward, well, here is a scholar of Hadith, but also, but that's all they do, but they're not really a judge, they're not really a historian, they're not really doing other kinds of work, they're not really a philosopher, mm. right? That's not really, you don't find that kind of disciplinary uh, sectarianism in mm. those thinking. So they are doing, because they understand um, the study of Islam in, in, in more universal terms. So, you know, mm. So when Islamic studies emerges, and you know you've done some of the work on this, if you think about the kind of classical figures of Islamic studies, who are trying to, and a lot of it is you know based around an un- reading of the Quran. Now, of course, there've been people reading the Quran and studying the Quran for centuries. So what is it that they start reading the Quran from? That you read the Quran in a way that you think the Quran is no longer uh, a. You don't have a Muslim. Uh, opening gambit about the Quran in a sense mm. that the Quran is, is then just becomes another religious text, another holy book that you can put together with other 
kinds of holy books. Yeah. Now, mm. it seems to me that for a Muslim reading of the Quran, you, you have to have a commitment from its primacy at some level of the time. And primacy in the sense that for you, it speaks to you in a way that maybe the uh, Bhagavad Gita or the Talmud or the Bible may not speak to you. Mm. And at least in those two um, cases, you could say, well, there are elements of that in there. But it is, it is different. It is, you know, you may show them respect out of respect to um, others, but you can't show them devotion, it mm. seems to me. Yeah? So, so in a sense, that's already the difference. I guess it's the difference between um, studying romance and being in love. It's not the same thing. Mm, yeah. You know? uh, or, you know, um, so I think... In a way, what I'm saying to you is, is, is this, that so for this, the purpose of Islamic studies um, was to, one way was to continue the legacy of knowledge production and um, which had been established as part of the um, formation of the Islamicate. But it was done so under constrained circumstances of the colonial uprooting of the linkage between the political structures uh, which enabled the production of knowledge to to have relevance and significance. Yeah, so you've seen mm. the shrinking of the curriculum and the madrasas, effectively. Yeah, shrinking mm. of the knowledge base of many of the leading um, scholars in the field in relation to what they know or what they think they should know uh, compared to um, historical times. Um, so I would say to you that. In a way, Islamic studies is is a kind of a museumization of Islamic uh, knowledge, uh, rather than a recognition of its vitality and its necessary engagement for a living community, which probably contains over you know one and a half billion souls. Mm. And if you then treat it like that as some kind of um, archive, um, then the only relationship you can really have to it is sort of archaeological one. Um, and I think mm. for me, the the problem is not, and I want to be very clear about this, you know, there's great, great scholarship, um, you know, people who are very, very learned, and I have no dispute with them. My only concern is this, that are they animated by a degree of um, either they're animated by the necessity of preservation or they're animated by the necessity of presentism rather than something about necessitating the projection into the future of the Islamic case. Now, that, it seems to me, is, is, is really, um, really the key here. So when... You know, it's a bit like when universities in the global south or in, 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 in Asia start having departments for oriental languages and you think mm. come on now you know <laughs> and they yeah. have that before they have departments for white studies or mm. you know or um so i think those are the issues and they look very kind of issues about uh, simply about titles and small kind of um, cosmetic changes but what i would like to say that they're actually quite profound in terms of their implications of how we understand ourselves, how we understand the world, and how we understand the history of the world so we can build a better future. 
And as long as we understand ourselves and the world in the terms that were laid down by the colonial project with its racism and its Eurocentricism, then the temptation to be drawn to the default position of racism, sexism, uh, other forms of oppression inflected through Eurocentricism is very, very strong and very difficult to resist. Mm. Mm. Okay, some good food for thought there. Thank you very much, Professor Said. Well, thank you, Hizo. This is another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of Critical Muslim Studies. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating.